You're listening to So Connected, a podcast for people trying to cultivate joy, purpose, and community in our lives. I'm Catherine. And I'm Sarah. Today we're going to be talking about unpacking our whiteness. But first, let's check in about how it's going. What are your highs and lows right now, Catherine? My high is just that it's the last week for us before school starts. And I feel like this year, it's just a lot of extra pressure to like really enjoy our time together because things just feel really uncertain with school starting back with the way that COVID is and with the girls going to kindergarten and being in public school for the first time. So we are just really savoring these last several days together. It isn't our last several days together, but it kind of feels that way in some weird way. So I've been really enjoying time with the family the last um, week. Well, and it's so much all at once, like not only public school, but then COVID and layer on top of that Arkansas and what's happening there with COVID. It's like, that's a lot to process all at one time. It is a lot all at one time. The There was a judge that made it so that schools can now mandate masks. Nice. Um, and so the school board is meeting on Wednesday night to discuss that, our school board. And I got an email this morning that was like 25 people can sign up to speak in favor of it and 25 parents can sign up to speak in opposition of it. And so it's like going to be a huge battle. And there's like, just like the social media situation on it is like crazy because parents are, you know, really vocal about it in both ways. So just a lot of tension for teachers who were just came back today and are welcoming students back a week from today or next Monday. So that's actually not my low though. (laughs) My low is that Sydney broke her arm, um, which is just, you know, I think it's just a bad time of year for that to happen because we've been really enjoying a lot of water activities and now we're done with them. So it's okay. She's a tough kid and she's really adventurous and um, she just, she did it just like she jumped off, like let go of some monkey bars and fell down and then like landed on her feet and then like landed on her hand. And so she wasn't even doing anything crazy when it happened, but It'll be okay, but it's four weeks in a cast, so that's just a long time for a six-year-old. Oh, I'm sorry y'all are going through that. It's totally okay. What are your highs and lows right now, Sarah? We just got back from a really fun weekend at our vacation house. This was the first time when we weren't actually there trying to put it together, and we were able to just enjoy it, and we brought friends with us, family friends, and so it was just so fun. We made our own pizzas. We went paddleboarding on the river. We went swimming in the state park pool. We ate dinner on a patio alongside a river. We went to the farmer's market and a local bookstore. It was just really fun to be out in the woods and to be hanging out with friends. It's like camping, but with king-size beds. I love that. I'm glad you guys are getting to put that to use. And my low is just that My job has been really, 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 really stressful lately, and I've been having stomach problems, hopefully as a result of that stress. I say hopefully because I hope it's not something more significant, but I've just been gaining weight, but I think it's related to having stomach problems and digestion problems and kind of like bloating. So I'm I'm hoping that the stress can recede a little bit, and then I can hopefully the stomach problems go away with that. Have you guys started school yet? We have started school. We've already we've been in school one week. We've had two COVID cases already in one week. Um, the local reports from another school that's already open. They've been having one to two cases a day, and our governor is still not allowing us to mandate masks. But some school districts, large school districts, are coming out and mandating masks. And so there's just so much tension and so much confusion and it's a really hard time. 
I thought this year was going to be easier as a school administrator, but it's actually harder because now there's just in, in these red states, there's such a battle for elevating politics above public health. And so yet we're marching forward with school at 100% capacity, but without a mask mandate, with no social distancing, like it's just, it's a hard time to be an administrator. But I am grateful that the kids are back in full-time school and and we have 98% of our families masking and, and so it does feel relatively safe. But I mean, Delta is no joke. It's very, very contagious. Wow. Yeah, my heart goes out to all the educators right now. My one tiny bit of silver lining is that our school principal called us and said that because... Because of where we are with COVID, they're allowing students this year who are twins to be in the same class if they want to be. And so my kids are not twins, but they're both in kindergarten. And so I was like, yes, I would love for them to be in the same class, which I feel like I feel really great about because we're going from this like homeschool pot of four kids to like just being in big school, which is a big like social change for my kids. And then also I'm hoping it'll like limit the number of days that we spend in quarantine by having them in the same class. So that's my Mm -hmm. like one thing that's like helping my mom heart feel a little bit better about dropping off my kids as they're going to be together. That's sweet. All right. Well, now let's talk about today's topic, unpacking our whiteness. And I want to state from the get-go that we are not experts by any stretch of the imagination. And we're not having this conversation to you know celebrate how far we've come, but instead to just keep the conversation going because unpacking our whiteness is really a huge responsibility, and it's important for all white people to commit to this ongoing practice. So I'm grateful to have this time here with you today, Catherine. Let's start back at the beginning. What was your relationship to race like growing up? So we really didn't talk about it much. Um, I was I, I grew up in Arkansas and went to a school that was predominantly white and really didn't have very diverse friend groups as a kid. And so I remember one time, like maybe in middle school or in high school, having a conversation on a road trip with my parents about like where they were explaining to me what affirmative action was. And they were talking about how unfair it is for hardworking white folks that so that's like, and that's like really the only conversation that I remember with my family about race in my entire childhood, which is just kind of crazy to me now thinking back on that and considering how much I talk to my kids and I talk about race all the time. And then I, I really feel like I, I realized that I was white when I was 19. And I had I actually had a friend in high school that was Pakistani Muslim at middle school, junior high. And in like September 11th happened when we were friends. And so but for me, that situation felt like so much more about her religion than it felt about her racial identity or her ethnic identity. And so I had had that sort of exposure earlier, but it didn't really like occur to me that I was white until I was 19. I spent a summer in Claremont, California, and I lived with a Korean American family um, while I was doing an internship. And the the church I was doing the internship in was really progressive um, and really involved in racial justice work. But the family that I was with, like in my mind, I'm pretty sure this is not how this conversation actually happened. And my friend who who was part of this family listens to this podcast, so she might hear this and laugh. But in my mind, like we were sitting there at dinner the second day and they were just like, Catherine, you're so racist. And I was like, I'm not racist. I'm colorblind. Like that's exactly how that conversation went down in my head because I had just never been challenged to think about it. And I didn't I didn't really know what it meant. Um 
to be white or to own my identity or to think about myself in the context of white privilege or white supremacy. So that was kind of my early introduction. I spent then like that kind of like caused a whole lot of stuff to unravel in me that summer. And I went back and was really committed to like sort of just learning and uncovering more. And I got involved with some stuff at my my undergraduate university and went on a civil rights road trip where we did like a trip through significant civil rights destinations of the South and just the opportunities to talk to people from who are doing who are doing racial justice work lots of different ways like visiting the museums and then also like in you know like downtown Birmingham I remember um meeting with people who were doing who were really engaged in some great work and then also just like processing all of those experiences with the people that were on the trip was a really a really big deal in my sort of like early thinking about about race it's a really common conversation when I'm talking to other white people that they didn't have to think about their race until much later in life. And like that just really speaks to what it's like to be white in America and kind of get to function as the default or as the norm, um, which is really unfair. Yeah. What about you, Sarah? I feel like I was really self-centered growing up with like a focus on the socioeconomic disadvantage that I felt and the difference that I felt around not having a nuclear family, not knowing my father and my mom worked at a fast food restaurant. And I just had a lot of shame around that and felt really different from my peers because my mom used her white privilege to fight really hard to get me into affluent schools that were predominantly white uh, because she knew that I would have a much higher quality education, unfortunately, if I were in those schools. And so I just kind of felt really different and focused a lot on that. And then in high school, I ended up getting into an international baccalaureate program. And it was this very fascinating situation because they basically put it at an inner city school that was primarily low income and primarily black and brown children. And then they had this, you know, academically elite program, which was primarily white and Asian children from more affluent families. And there was just, so it was on paper, it was this very integrated school, but there was sort of no conversation at all around what was going on in that situation. And I feel like we as kids handled it really well in terms of uh, we we had integrated electives and integrated extracurricular activities, and we did we did connect and we did uh, build friendships across lines of difference. But it's just so bizarre to me that there the adults around us weren't supporting any unpacking of that situation or processing of what was happening. And it, it's weird because my teachers did do a really good job of of putting uh, authors of color and and thinkers of color in front of us and having us really question the canon and and really deviate away from that but there was no sort of meta conversation about what was happening right in front of us and um, so it wasn't until I got to college that I really started to understand the way that race works in our country and as an American studies major, went pretty deep into that subject area. So I'm just grateful for that trajectory that I got on in college. Wow, that's really interesting. And I think that just, like, I think that, you know, 
education is still segregated in a lot of ways that are similar to that in our country. There were things look different, but they're not. And so that's a, a great testament. I think that really is a place where I've felt challenged as my kids are getting ready to head into public school and they're going to be going to a school that's like 75% white kids um, to really think about. Whereas there are schools within, you know, a 40 minute drive of us that are 20% white kids. Like it's really, it's really made me think about like what, how, how important diversity is in my kids' education. So it's interesting to hear that you had that experience of being in a school that did have, sort of like diverse representation, but then it was, um, the programming was so separated. Catherine, what kind of work have you done to unpack your whiteness and what do you recommend to others? So I think on like sort of the outer layer, I feel like I've, you know, that experience I had in college and then sort of just the way that I've seen sort of the intersectionalities of, racial justice issues and other issues I'm committed to in education and and in organizational capacity building and different things, the way that I've seen all of that play out, like I feel like I've really committed to just the ongoing and never ending work of trying to read and study and learn more about history and learn more about different perspectives on these issues. But I feel like that has, it's become like more and more apparent to me that that sort of like cognitive effort to understand sort of like the history is not enough to create the level of change that I feel like we need. Um, I also feel like the time I spent living in India and like learning to speak Canada and just like really created opportunity for me to sort of grapple in a deeper way with my own identity and really like being in situations where I didn't see other white people for six months at a time or I didn't see anyone who spoke English, like really sort of made me have this sort of like embodied experience of of getting to know what it's like to be part of a different culture. Um, and of course, still being like somewhat separate from that. But I mean, pretty, pretty, pretty longer, like a fairly decent amount of time being like really, really immersed. Um, but then coming back to the US and then kind of like getting back into like a more white dominant culture in terms of my just like environment and sort of like who I'm interacting with, I've really kind of realized that I have to be more intentional and doing sort of like deeper work to be willing to sort of decenter whiteness in my life. And so for me, that's that deeper level of work has involved a really being willing to willing to get in touch with my own sort of vulnerability. I think this is something that I talk about, like almost every time we talk about anything is like the, the willingness to get in touch with my own pain from my life and being able to willing to tolerate being in emotionally difficult places in my own self, I think is an important part of the anti-racism work. Like I think if you can't, if you aren't willing to sit in pain and sort of like develop a posture of humility and lament, like you can't do that for other people's pain either. Um, and then I think the the second part of that for me of the deeper inner work is just like identifying where white supremacy comes out in my life and in my values and trying to like really get clear on like, okay, is that something that is cultural or is that something that is like my personality or is that something that's like, like, is there a different way that we could do that? That would be more inclusive Are like, where are my biases coming up? Cause it's not always for me, at least it's not clear all the time. Like what is what and how do I kind of parse that out? So I think really like just slowing down and being reflective about what is what and fleshing that out has been also a really big part of 
the work that I've done to unpack my whiteness. What's an example of white supremacy characteristics that you kind of see pop up in your life the most? So, I mean, I think something that's been a big switch more recently has been, like, I think I'm, I, there, oh, there's so many. Okay, so like one is either or thinking. I think I have a real tendency to like want to see things black and white and like very analytically. And I think I've gotten a lot more comfortable. I think I've talked on the podcast quite a bit about paradox. And I feel like that, that being able to hold sort of like a both and is like a prerequisite for like nonviolent resistance. And so I think that that has been something that I've been really trying to get more comfortable with not knowing. And I think that I feel like that's really tied to white supremacy of like wanting to know and understand and then be able to dominate and control. And I feel like that impulse is like really deep in me and I've had to really work against that. Um, I think another thing, even this like efficiency thing of like wanting things to be like really streamlined, I think that that often is a very like individualistic like effort and it, it doesn't allow space for empathy or for compassion or for collaboration even of like we're not not allowing not allowing for time for other people's input and to really really approach things in a decentered way of like I don't know what the answer here is going to be but like I want to come together and I want to walk out of the room all knowing things that we didn't know going in and I think that kind of mentality you know it has to do with sharing power it has to do with not being as efficient it has to do with not being as much in control. And I feel like that's really tied to the part of whiteness that I don't want to define who I am. So those are some examples. Sure. So what about you, Sarah? What work have you done to unpack white your whiteness? And what do you recommend for others? I've done things that are similar to what you listed. And so I want to try to share two different things. Um, one is workshops on critical race theory. I really love the work from the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. Um, I learn something every time I go just about systemic racism and how that works in our country and how we're complicit in that. And then that's, that's a very intellectual approach. And I find myself attracted to this work in intellectual ways, but then I'm trying to push myself to engage in more emotional ways. And that's not easy for me because of my trauma. I tend to stay in my intellectual brain because I feel safer there. And so I recommend these uh, truth, racial healing, and transformation circles where essentially they bring together people from diverse backgrounds and they essentially cultivate an experience where you just talk with each other and connect with each other in very vulnerable and very human ways. And this idea is like if we can just start to connect with others across lines of difference in authentic ways and be in community with others in authentic ways, we can support our own healing because we, we are all hurt by racism and, and the way that it impacts each of us. And so I have found those to be really amazing. Hmm. I love that. Are they like, are they putting people of color together and then white people together in different groups or are the groups mixed? Like what is? They're integrated groups so that you are seeing yourself reflected. Like you'll see common experiences that you have, even though you're from different races. 
and they just ask you deep questions that help you just get to your own humanity and share your yourself vulnerably. And so then you can just, you start to see common threads in our experiences as humans. And then the idea is like, then you start to connect with others who, who might on the surface seem different from you, but actually have a lot of similarities. But then it also helps white people be so much more open to the experience of people of color and then helps people of color hopefully feel more validated and more heard and seen and valued for their experiences. Hmm, that's interesting. I feel like there's, I, I feel like I've seen models like that that go either way. And I feel like sometimes it's challenging for me to think like that I should expect to get in a room with a person of color and ask them to tell me about their experience being black or whatever. Like, I don't feel comfortable about that. And so I, um, I, I struggle with like, and I think that the, the work of building like a white culture that isn't built on domination is like work for white people to do together. I don't know. So I kind of go back and forth on like the benefits of, and I think there are definitely benefits of being able to be together and share in those experiences too. So it's interesting to hear about different models. Well, and it's it's not like a dismantling white circle where you white supremacy circle where you really would just want white people doing white people work. It really is, and it, it's it's an opt in situation, obviously. And so people are choosing this opportunity to come together and connect across lines of difference. And it's not like this token experience of like, okay, black people, tell us about your experience with racism. It's really just about talking about your childhood memories talking about your family. And so it really is just an opportunity to connect as humans. But then obviously who we are as humans is deeply impacted by our race. And so that does come into it, but that's not like the focus of it. Um, Something else I was going to say about, about kind of just based on hearing you talk about the intellectual level of work versus the emotional work is I heard on a podcast at some point, which I don't think I can link to because I'm not sure when or where it was. But I heard somebody who I think was a therapist who was talking about racism. And he was he was talking about his work working with couples that have had marital affairs. And he was saying that like, you can bring people together that have had some kind of like rupture in their experience or in their relationship. And you can like, it can be all cognitive and they can like, come up with ways that they're going to like show up for each other going forward and all of that. But unless you do the actual work of getting partner A who's had the affair to see partner B's pain and like meet and comfort them in that emotional way, that there's never really going to be reconciliation or like deep trust again. And so for me, that metaphor of thinking about bringing together people from both sides of from all the different sides, it's complicated of racial divides and being able to like really see our humanity um, and our pain together. Um, that metaphor about about the, the marriage was really helpful. So I just thought I'd share that. That is helpful. Thank you. And what are the most profound concepts that you've learned on your journey, Catherine? So I think something that I really just being very honest that I have struggled with and that I continue to struggle with is that like whiteness is not normal. It's not equal to normal. Like, 
And I think that because I just grew up not realizing that I was white or that like I was, I was in, I was like, you know, like a fish in a fish in an ocean that doesn't know that they're in water. I think I didn't realize like what it means to be white or even like that, what it means to be an American isn't defined by white culture. Like you're still equally American if you're not a white American. Like this was like mind boggling to me in my teens and early twenties. And I think that, and, and right, like I feel like I've done quite a bit to try to work that out of me, but I still feel like that's ongoing work. And so that, um, that sort of orientation of just wanting to like continually acknowledge and disavow like those ideas is ongoing work for me and is something that I constantly um, try to remind myself of. And then the second thing is kind of what we were just talking about is that I, re- I recently read at the beginning of this year, I read Resma Minikin's book, My Grandmother's Hands. Um, and he is talking about racialized trauma and the embodiment of white supremacy and sort of like in bodies of color and in, and for people in white bodies, like how trauma gets stored in our bodies and that that deeper level of work has to happen in order for there to be racial healing. And just an example of this is in 2019, I went to a, a plantation in South Carolina and I was expecting it to be, you know, more like a civil rights museum, but no, it was like the glory of the plantation where they were like celebrating the relationship of the slave owners and the slaves. And there were like documentaries and like a petting zoo. And it was like just a very icky and uncomfortable situation. And so I think, um, but right, like I wasn't actually in physical danger there, but my body, like something was happening in my body of just being like, this is so disgusting. And so to start to, you know, I think in one level, express that opinion. Second level is like figuring out like, what is that in my body that's happening? What is that response? And sitting with that and processing that. And I think that's kind of like an extreme example of like a bodily reaction to racism. But there are like more subtle ways that I like when I catch myself thinking that something that is normal, or something should be done a certain way. And I realize that's related to my cultural identity. And I'm able to switch that. I also have like that same kind of feeling that's like a little different, but it's also kind of like a bodily experience. And so being able to sort of sit with that and um, work that out, I think is, is critical to the deeper level change work that needs to happen. Yeah. All of that resonates with me. What about you, Sarah? What have been the most profound concepts that you've learned on your journey? The first one is that there is a difference between bigotry and racism and that I I know I'm not a bigot, but I am complicit in systemic racism. And I think that's hard for a lot of white people to hear and to understand. I mean, this is why so many governors are outlawing critical race theory because there's such this fear of the unknown and, and the fear of, of really coming face to face with our past and the pain of that past. And so I feel grateful to have had the opportunity to, to learn and to, and to come face to face with that and to keep coming face to face with it. It's not something that you can sit and understand in a single setting. And it's something that takes active and ongoing unpacking and active and ongoing work because it's just so infused in who we are and how we show up. Um, so that's really hard, but I'm also really thankful for the organizations that have taken time to 
to, to train me and to train others in that really critical concept. And then the other one that comes to the top of my mind is, was not originally, uh, related to slavery, but it's actually connected to the Holocaust. And there was a Holocaust survivor who spent 10 years. I think I've said this before, so I'll just summarize it for people who haven't heard it in previous episodes. She spent 10 years studying how the Holocaust could have happened. And at the end of the day, she said all of our normal concepts of societies, like a socialist or communist or democratic, like all of those break down. And at the end of the day, there are only two kinds of societies. There's a partnership society and there's a domination society. And so I just, I, I think a lot about our social justice movements and how they've been so much in the construct of domination of like, okay, this one group who ha- hasn't had any rights, now they're going to like climb, uh, climb on the backs of other people, right? Like white women did this in feminism, like climb on the backs of black women to like get your place in society. And it's like, we have to just dismantle all of that, all that notion of like that, that there's this scarcity when it comes to human liberation and like figure out how to truly work in partnership. And so it's just at the forefront of my mind as I follow along with a lot of anti-bias, anti-racist work and, and try to find my place in that world, like trying to make sure that we, we have models for true partnership and that we don't replicate domination in, in any way um, because it ends up hurting us all in the end. I like that. I like that shift. And I like that idea about scarcity. I mean, I do, th- I do think though that there are times when like, right, it's easy. I think when you're in a position of privilege to say that things, resources aren't scarce, but like just thinking about the origins of racism in our country and about like, I mean, just imagine like being the people that left Europe on a ship to come to the, to North America, like the people like our, my ancestors were desperate, right? And like, they came to this country out of desperation and there was incredible scarcity that was like a matter of life and death. And then out of that scarcity, I feel like they started and out of that trauma, they started trying to dominate other people. And so it's just, yeah, it's a lot of unworking and reworking to do. Thanks for sharing. And now for our last question, what are you struggling with the most when it comes to dismantling white supremacy in your life, Catherine? I honestly... Like, right, I have the ability, because I'm white, to turn down this knob and to spend less time thinking about it. And I think, I mean, even just like reflecting on preparing for this episode, I was like, wow, it's like amazing that I can like, I was kind of tracking like different times, different time periods in my life where I've spent more just hours of my week or of my month thinking about it and working on it. Because I do think it takes active work to become more and more aware and to really do that self-reflection piece and then really be intentional about thinking about the kind of community that I have around me and sort of like the conversations I'm having with other people and sort of like how diverse my friend circle is. And so I think I'm just not putting enough time in. I think honestly, like I think I know sort of areas that would be growing edges for me, resources I want to invest in, relationships I want to invest in in this area. Um, And I'm maybe just not putting enough time on it. Cause I think it's something you never really arrive at. I think it's something that you're continually practicing and trying to get better. I was talking to 
somebody today who was saying that she moved from New York to Arkansas after the 2016 election because she wanted to stretch herself and like she didn't understand what was happening in the world. And I was like, wow, that's like such a different level of commitment to trying to stretch your understanding. And I think that I find myself often like trying to lean in towards people who have ideas that are more progressive than I do. And I don't spend enough time listening to people who, you know, are that are, are on the other side. Um, I th- and I think that's a trap for white people to think that we're so progressive and to not listen to other folks and really understand their perspective too, other white people. So that's sort of an area where I feel like I have, have some work to do. And then the other thing in terms of just the inner work, as I was thinking about this internal family systems model of therapy has talks about the eight C's as being as like a way of defining our authentic self. And the eight C's are calm, connection, compassion, creativity, clarity, curiosity, confidence, and courage. And so something else I want to do is just as I was kind of thinking about like, how does white supremacy show up in my life versus like, what is culture that I cultural identity I want to hang on to. So I was thinking about like wanting to sit with each of those words and seeing kind of for me, like what keeps me from being compassionate, what keeps me from feeling creative, what keeps me from feeling calm, because I have a feeling that there's kind of an overlap between my tendencies towards knowing everything and being in control and being super organized and being efficient and, and things that would keep me from being more true to myself. So I put that on my list of sort of this, you know, I have this year goal of work leaning into being more true to myself. And I put that on my list of an activity to do and to kind of dig in in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. I love the, all those C's and it's just making me reflect on how negatively impacted I have been by my own childhood trauma and I haven't had this layer on top of that of like racial trauma and just how much healing we need in our world and especially in our country. Like there are so many other examples of other countries that are, have authentically tried and are continuing to try to face their past and to reconcile like who they once were versus who they want to be as a country. Like it's just very different in Germany in terms of how they handle the Holocaust. It's very different in New Zealand in terms of how they, how they as they as a collective, they are reconciling their, their, their past with their indigenous Maori population. And like, we're just so far from that. Um, I mean, I just hope that my hope is, I feel like we, our generation has come so much when we think about our own families, not even talking about race, that hopefully our children are going to be in a much better place to be leaders of moving, moving this work forward. Yeah. It's really hard to change when the people in power, like their identity is tied up in maintaining the status quo, right? Like I think teaching critical race theory is like not only jeopardizes potential for power, but it also like impacts people's identity. So it's really hard. Um, What about you, Sarah? What are you struggling with the most when it comes to dismantling white supremacy in your life? Um, You were talking about it earlier with the characteristics of white supremacy culture, and we can link to one of those articles 
I think there's just such overlap between white supremacy culture and my personality. It's really hard for me every time I go back to that work and I look at the list, I'm like, sense of urgency, yes, that's me. Either or thinking, yes. Worship of the written word, yes. Perfectionism, yes. And so I'm really trying to unpack and and parse apart, especially as a leader of an organization, a white leader, I have so much weight on my shoulders and responsibility to really try to actively dismantle white supremacy culture. And it's not easy for me to do because so much, so many of those characteristics have led to success in my life. Like so many of those characteristics helped me launch a school um, with a team of other people. And so it's just, it takes a lot of ongoing work to parse those things apart and to separate them out from my trauma and to kind of like get back to that core of myself. It's, it's not so clear what is my core self versus what is my trauma self. And so it's all wrapped up together. And then also I think a lot about how to help our country reconcile and, and face our past. And, and I know reparations are part of that. And I just haven't done enough research myself about what could that look like organizationally, what kind of step forward could we take on that path without having a bigger a bigger push from from the government and I just haven't done enough work in that area. Hmm. Yeah, that's something I want to look into more too. And I really I think our personalities are similar and so I feel like we struggle with this probably in very um very similar ways. So we'll have to continue to check in about how it's going. It's important work. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things I started doing this year was um, bringing white leaders together in my organization to go back to the white supremacy culture characteristics and say, you know, what what is it that you want to work on this year? And how can we hold each other accountable as fellow white people to doing this work? And so we're going to go back to that. We made that list. And we're going to go back to that at, at, at periodically throughout throughout this year to, to have that layer of accountability for trying to put actions into place and not just have talked the talk. Well, that's it for today's topic. There's never really an end to this work. We're really just pausing this conversation and I hope that we can keep coming back to it, Catherine, and keep supporting each other on our journeys. And let's go ahead and switch to our tips and tricks segment. What do you want to share today, Catherine? First, I just need to take like a deep breath. (sighs) Thanks for the conversation, Sarah. I don't have as much of a tip or trick today as I just have a desire in my heart to bless the teachers in my life. And um, I'm just I'm just really thinking about and feeling for teachers who are just a, like in year, I don't know, year three now of just like a disrupted, crazy academic year. Um, and one thing that I like, I'm putting together a little gift basket to take to our, we now have one teacher to to worry about trying to, to support this year, um, a little gift basket to take to her on open house night. And I just want to say that like teachers love it when you bring them pencils that are pre-sharpened, that are like the really good ones, not the ones that have like printed characters stuff on the outside, like get the really good wood, expensive, pre-sharpened ones, if you can afford it and you would like to give your teacher a blessing. Because I remember when I taught, and I taught a little bit older, my kids are going to be in kindergarten, so I don't know if this is a problem in kindergarten, but I feel like all around the world, every time I've gone to observe at a school, there's always some kids that can't find a pencil. So take some pencils to your teacher along with whatever else you're giving them. 
And we can put a link to the brand. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it starts with a T. T, yes. That's the ones I got. I think I bought $50 worth of pencils. I was like, I just love this woman so much. And then I put another box of the pencils in my cart. I, I really, really love her. I just got another box of pencils. So that's my plan. So Sarah, what's your tip or trick today? It's going to sound very shallow after all the conversations we have had today, but let's lighten it up a little bit. With, I love taking corn tortillas and slicing them into thin strips with a pizza cutter and then like massaging it with olive oil and sprinkling it with salt and then baking it in the oven and then having crispy strips to put on egg tacos because we eat egg tacos a lot here in Texas and they are delicious and especially with these little strips on them. That is what I want to have for dinner tomorrow. So thanks. (laughs) Sounds great. Now let's close out our episode with Facing Forward. Catherine, how did you do on your intentions from the past two weeks and what new intentions do you want to set for yourself for the next two weeks? So my last, the last two weeks, my goals were just to enjoy the last few weeks of summer and to read the book, The Warmth of Other Suns, which I have not finished, but I have been enjoying summer. And for the next two weeks, I'm going to keep reading that book and I'm going to have my kids start kindergarten and I'm going to try to just like hold down the fort. Otherwise, of like doing my job and feeding my family and um, hoping that we don't get sick right away in the first week of school. The kids haven't been in school for, you know, a year and a half. So I'm sure like we're going to get a cold, if nothing else, um, right away. So just kind of bracing for that, taking it easy. What about you, Sarah? How'd you do the last two weeks and what do you want to make true for yourself in the next two weeks? I keep putting the same goal on my list week after week. I want to prioritize health and wellness and join the YMCA and I'm really dragging my feet on this. It's just been an incredibly busy time. So I'm going to keep it on the list, I want to build a stronger exercise routine for myself than I have right now. And if there's some reason why it shouldn't be the YMCA, I'm going to think about that and really unpack it because maybe there's something underneath why I'm not joining the YMCA, but I'm not sure. So I'm going to do that work and try to make sure I have an exercise routine in the next two weeks. That sounds great. Well, that's all for this episode of So Connected. We'll be back in two weeks on Tuesday. In the meantime, you can find the show notes at soconnectedpodcast.com or you can find me, Sarah, on my blog at feedingthesoil.com. You can also find us on Instagram at So Connected Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, we would be so grateful for your review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. See you in two weeks. Wishing you joy, purpose, and community.